Deconstruction is trending, and many are simply struggling to make sense of it all. But what if the existing structures and culture of the American church at large share some of the blame for this rise in deconstruction amongst the younger generation? Many young people have come up through churches that were swept up in the seeker-sensitive and church growth movement of the late 90s, early 2000s. For the sake of attracting unbelievers and the unchurched, the teaching in some of these churches was very shallow, pragmatic, unintelligent, and just never addressed the hard topics of Scripture. When the young people from these churches went off to college and encountered people who started poking holes in their faith, they had no answers because they'd never been equipped. They were woefully unprepared to deal with the big and difficult issues surrounding their faith. Shallow teaching produces shallow, unequipped, and ill-prepared Christians who don't know how to properly wrestle with their doubts, because they just don't know the Bible. It's not just that the Word of God has not been faithfully taught. Poor leadership, sin, abuse, financial embezzlement, misaligned priorities— And sexual scandals have created untold levels of emotional and spiritual harm on an entire generation of Americans. Many are now wondering, if I can't trust the church, can I trust any message the church proclaims? Could it be that the American church needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror? Is the rampant deconstruction we're seeing a consequence of the decades of dysfunction, disobedience, and unfaithfulness of the American church? Welcome, everybody, to the Beards and Bible podcast, podcast where we talk of Bible, beards, everything in between. I'm your host, Josh, joined by our other host, Gabe. Gabe, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, I was um, looking through Instagram the other day, mm-hmm. which kind of gives me the dry heaves a little bit that I would actually say that. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a young lady who would burst into people's offices at work dressed as a giant heart mm. Mm. and then hand them a balloon and begin singing to them happy birthday or happy Valentine's Day or whatever. Yes, I know this young woman. And I thought it was really funny. It was a, it was a really funny gig. So I like, you know, um, looked at some of her other singing telegrams that she did and uh lo and behold it was um it was someone kin to you yes do you want to uh my... do you want to explain yeah so it was my sister joy she has mm. um blown up recently on the interwebs on the yeah. online space with her singing telegrams so uh yeah man it's kind of crazy she's been on Good Morning America, and now this media, and uh, she's gone viral on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, and uh, man, we're really proud of her. She's doing really good stuff. It's it's pretty funny how um, she's actually been doing the singing Telegram thing for quite a bit now, and then this past few months, man, it just blew up, so it's crazy. It's yeah. Crazy cool. Yeah, I watched several of them. They're pretty funny. Yeah, and here's what's cool, and she's not our podcast sponsor, 
today, so um, you don't have to skip ahead. And we don't have a sponsor today, so you don't have to you don't have to skip ahead. Jason Bell, Jason Bell told me the other night he was like, "Yeah, I just skip ahead through your sponsor." I'm like, "Oh, thanks, man." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's cool is you can actually book her to do singing telegrams. Like, if you have somebody that you want to send a cameo, she'll like actually record a video or send it. Or if you live like in a two hour radius, she'll drive to where it is that you want to send a singing telegram and do it. So it's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, so I had um, one of one of my cousins that lives in Pennsylvania. She randomly uh, called me yesterday and was like, "Oh my gosh, I was driving, and on a radio station here in Pennsylvania, the DJs were talking about her." Hmm. So crazy. It is. It is. I yeah. guess one could say I am related to an internet celebrity. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And all this time, Gabe, I I thought my siblings were blessed to be related to me as the Pearson Bible. Yeah. No. We should should get her on as a guest and talk about, I don't know. Yes. Singing. Singing. Telegrams. Dressing up as giant hearts. Yeah. The heart of worship. I just, I love though, like, you know, this person is sitting in their office chair super awkwardly, like. They're just going about their day, or sometimes it's like in a conference room and they're about to do a staff meeting or something, and she just yeah. busts in and <laughs> just the I would I would just lie down in the fetal position and just want to die. <laughs> in in both scenarios, if I was the person receiving the singing telegram or if I was her, yeah. like just yeah. the awkwardness of busting into a room and singing a song at the top of your lungs, dressed like a giant yes. heart. Yes. Well, and here's the thing. Um, some people have asked, is that just an act? And the answer is no. She's mm-hmm. always been that way. Yeah, she's always very um, animated, very yes. always singing, right? Yes. Since the time she was two years old, she was singing. Like, we have pictures of her in church. And she could never just sing. She always would have to make, like, jokes. Like, she's two years old, and she sang at a Christmas Eve service at our church. Two years old. Like, I have a two-year-old. He does not sing. She was singing it too. And she got up there and my mom was like, Joy, you don't need to say anything. You don't, whatever. (laughs) She gets up there and goes, good afternoon, folks. I'm here to sing a song about a baby in a manger. And then she launched into a way in a manger. Nice. Yeah, she's... Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised at all that she's landed in this type Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, I'm happy for her, but I'm not surprised because I saw it coming from a mile away. But anyway... Do you think she's able to pay the bills doing Instagram now? Like, do you think? Oh yeah, really? Oh yeah. Okay, you're squinting. She told me. (laughs) She told me how much she made in one month from TikTok, and I was like, "Uh, I don't know what I'm doing with my life." That is bizarre. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Maybe you got to say something really bombastic and crazy, and then we turn it into a TikTok, and Mm -hmm. then we post on TikTok, and then you and me. My friend, it's caviar and champagne and the penthouse. Oops. I don't know a nice hotel. Yeah, <laughs> at the at the penthouse at the Waldorf. Smooth sailing for you and me, sir. When our yeah. ship comes in, boy, I can keep going. I'm not going to. <laughs> that's the that's the TikTok clip. There it is. That's the t- <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't think any. One more one more quick side note. Um, 
Okay. This is probably not a good thing to do, but Stacey and I sometimes have a habit of, like, you know, just to unwind. You know, we're, like, trying to fall asleep. She'll put on a podcast on her phone or sometimes my phone or something. You know, it's just a podcast that we can, like, kind of it takes our, you know, minds somewhere and just, like, drift off to sleep or whatever. And sometimes we listen to, like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, the Bible Project or something something kind of calm and, like, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just something we've done for years, you know. It's – it's um but anyways, she she uh, I was already asleep, and I think she put on the Beards and Bible podcast. She's trying to like catch up on episodes and stuff. And I woke up to the sound of you doing one of those radio voices, you know. <laughs> and so yeah, like last night I wake up and I'm like, you've got to mm. cha- you got to turn this podcast off. You, th- yeah, we can, yeah. I cannot this listen so to annoying. this and try to fall asleep. Please. Yeah. You can start dreaming that you're, you know, waking up in the middle of the prohibition in the 1930s mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, um, our last few episodes have gotten um, some really interesting feedback, and I'm really, really grateful for our listeners for interacting with the content. That's one of the things we love about this podcast. It seems like we have um, touched a nerve Man, I was so tempted to go into the 1930s radio DJ just then. Mm-hmm. Seems like we've hit gold there, Gabe. Wow. <laughs> um, but no, it seems like we've touched a nerve because this seems to be a trending topic in all aspects. I've heard from so many people who listened to it and said, this describes my spouse, this describes my child, my friend, and... Um, yeah, it, it. I guess I knew it was trending. I knew this was a topic that needed to be discussed, but I don't think I knew the extent to which this has impacted people. Mm. And so I was a little bit surprised. And um, one of the things that we've said from like the get-go with this series is we want to be fair in... Um, exploring this from all angles, right? So we want to be fair in examining the reasons why someone would deconstruct and go down this journey. Now, no two deconstruction stories are the same. So I shared a little bit in a bonus episode last week about why I started my deconstruction journey. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, so no two stories are the same. We're going to have another bonus episode where I'm interviewing somebody who is someone who has deconstructed and deconverted. So they're no longer a Christian and they once were. And, um, I was speaking with them on the phone the other day and, and he told me, he's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not at all in the least bit like upset or mad at churches or I'm not hurt by church or anything like that. That's not why I went down this path. So not everybody does this for the same reason. Does that making sense? What mm-hmm. I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do think there are several things that we can examine um, that are pretty common. And I feel like the two that we're going to look at today are reasons for why people have either said they started down this journey of deconstruction or I think when you start looking at the root um, of why they did, I think one of these is... is um, perhaps the cause behind it. Not always, but 
I would say this, these are common causes behind what might lead someone to deconstruct. Mm-hmm. But I'll also say this, and then we'll dive into these. Um, at the end of the day, man, when we all stand before God, because we all stand, we all will stand before God and give an account of our lives. We cannot blame a bad church experience for why we've rejected Jesus. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you think people sometimes wear like that as the ace of spades trump card? I've been hurt by church. I had a bad church experience, so therefore I'm not culpable for my own acceptance or rejection of Jesus. Yeah, I don't know if it's the ace of spades, but definitely the currency of victimhood is in our culture in the United States of America is very powerful right now. And if you are a victim or have been a victim of anything, uh, that gives you a lot of license in the United States of America to to do things that you would otherwise not be able to do or to say mm-hmm. things that you would otherwise not be able to say. Um, we almost idolize victimhood and we use it to disregard absolute and objective truth sometimes biological truth, um, theological truth. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, um, victimhood and our obsession with victimhood and our willingness to adopt that title as an excuse for individual responsibility, that is an issue, and I think that is something to keep in mind. But, let's be honest, there are people who genuinely are victims of spiritual abuse and poor leadership mm-hmm. and bad teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like genuine victims. And if you don't mm-hmm. believe me and you're rolling your eyes and you're going, oh, come on, man, you just need to like do some research on the stuff going on with the SBC, um, cover up scandals, sex abuse scandals in the Catholic church, mm-hmm. the stuff that went down at Willow Creek, the stuff that went down at Hillsong, um, stuff that went down at Mars Hill. I mean, it, this is a, an issue like spiritual abuse, bad teaching, poor leadership. These things are definitely issues in the church at large. And I think that's why this deconstruction thing starts trending in the minds of people who maybe have new faiths, immature faiths, or, um, yeah, faiths that are kind of built on, um, whatever tribe maybe they came to faith in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I would say, go ahead. Oh no, no, I was just screaming with you. Okay, don't ever do that again. Or you're fired. Carry on. <laughs> so we're going to talk about poor and bad teaching, and how sometimes that will lead people to deconstruct. And then we're going to talk a little bit about church hurt and how that might lead someone to deconstruct. Ultimately, someone's choice to deconstruct is their choice and their choice alone. They cannot blame poor teaching, and they cannot blame a bad church experience. So we don't have excuses for our rejection of Christianity, but we do have reasons. Um, And I I say we. I, I have not rejected Christianity, but someone that may go down this path of deconstruction has a reason most of the time to do it. And these... Two areas in particular tend to be very common reasons, poor teaching and church hurt. So, um, Gabe, why don't you start us off? When when does poor and bad teaching lead people to deconstruct? We've got several reasons, Mm -hmm. so give us the first. When the teaching they're receiving is just opinion-driven 
and just Bible-informed. So when the teaching is nothing but the pastor getting up and sharing their opinion on a little bit of everything, like the state of the world, um, how you should discipline your kids, the problem with churches today, politics, etc., um, with just some Bible sprinkled in, the water gets uh, super muddy very quickly. Um, in doing that, people aren't taught to know the difference between what is the truth of Scripture and the opinion of pastor so-and-so. And mm. people grow uh, reliant on that pastor or teacher because uh, they're not they're not actually empowered to do the work of seeking truth themselves um, because the pastor has kind of cornered the market on what is true. Hmm. Um, there's a quote that you have in the notes I like. Um, you can fool all of the people sometime, and you can fool some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. Um, people eventually wake up and start questioning and thinking for themselves. Um, but this form of teaching, it eventually leads people to start questioning and asking, am I hearing truth or just the opinion of pastor so-and-so? What all of this is just opinion, and what can I trust to be true? So I wonder hmm. if there's a way, like how do you, Josh, from the pulpit, tell your congregants and the people that you're teaching Hey, what I'm about to give you is just opinion. Do you do that, or do you um, do you differentiate between when you're reading um, re- when you're reading the Word of God and giving an opinion? I try. Uh, I, I try really hard. If I have an opinion on something, and I know that this is not like a scriptural thing, it's just kind of where I lean towards it. I will give somebody that disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really try to keep my thoughts on stuff like politics or, you know, the problem of those churches today. Like, mm-hmm. I'll have those conversations, right? But I'll have them on um, outlets like the one you and I are on right now, right? I mean, it's part of this podcast is we're talking through some of our viewpoints on cultural issues. And I try to keep the pulpit focused on the teaching of the word, mm. not on my opinion or viewpoint. Now, I think that's almost impossible to not let some of our perspectives and some of our viewpoint creep in because we're the ones presenting it, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, anyone says, mm-hmm. well, I'm, it's clearly just objective. Well, no, because you're presenting it. There's some of you in it. But, um, yeah, I just try to give that disclaimer. I don't, I don't know. How about you? How do you do that? Mm. I don't know either. Yeah, maybe just the same way. Um Or maybe I say things and preface it like something I've observed over the years or something like that. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's – I don't know. Maybe it's just our generation that you and I grew up in as millennials. Um, (laughs) We we tend (laughs) – We're millennials. Yeah, we tend to not say very dogmatic things. Um, if you ever notice, like with millennials, especially when we communicate with each other, we say things, and I, this is annoying to me, but don't get me wrong. <laughs> we say things like, I feel like this, or it right. seems like that. Um, we, we, or we use, we use inflection in our voice where it's like phrased almost like a question. We're mm-hmm. like, so one of the things I've noticed mm-hmm. is that, <laughs> it's oh like, gosh. dude, you gotta stop with the up talk. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell me what you like. Yeah. But it, there, there is a time and a place for that, like a very emphatic, right? 
um, speaking of truth, uh, that mm-hmm. that may that may be. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, opinions are just true, um, right? But yeah, that's tough to to be able to. <sighs> Yeah, I think that there are times that church cultures can can create a pulpit ministry where, like, oh, man, Pastor so-and-so said it again. Let's listen to his rant about this or his rant about that. Mm-hmm. 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 And, um, you know, it, it becomes just really muddy. Okay, what is just this one guy's hobby horse or bone to pick with this issue? And what is actually like the truth of scripture in this, right? Hmm. And you saw this with the ministry of Mark Driscoll a little bit. Um, I followed his ministry quite closely, probably 12, 13 years ago. And part of what made him popular is there were times when he would just rant about the, like his hobby horse stuff. Like he would rant about um, young dudes living in their parents' basement and playing video games. Hmm. And it was just, I mean, like, he, and he'd go off and people were like, man, he's really giving it to these guys. They really step up and be men. But, like, looking back, I'm like, okay, so where, where is that in the Gospel of Luke? Like, I don't, you're teaching through Luke and you get to a verse about Luke being a, you know, writing this for Theophilus and Luke was a doctor and, okay, Luke actually was driven and Luke had a career. Okay, well, let's talk for 10 minutes about, you know, how you don't. You know, that it's kind of like, how mm-hmm. did, what? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think it eventually it creates doubt in people's mind and they just go, man, is that really the gospel I'm hearing or is it something else? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think another, this is, are you done with that reason? Yep, yep. Okay. So So another way that bad teaching can propel someone to deconstruction is when the teaching gets extreme by way of overemphasis. And what I mean by that, and we mentioned this in the last episode, when a group tends to major on minor doctrines instead of majoring on major doctrines. So in a teaching ministry or in a church where the main and plain truths of scripture get sidelined for more exciting or fringy topics. And those exciting and fringy topics get presented in such a way that it's only the elite, super spiritual and perceptive few that care enough about spiritual things to discover them. Um, First of all, it creates like this really weird culture of pride and elitism within that group. Because it takes doctrinal minors like eschatology, where the church just wants to talk about, you know, what's going on in the Middle East prophecy. You know, we know this and other people don't know this. Wow, look how spiritual we are. Uh, spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare. Um, you see this in like really charismatic churches that get really into that stuff mm-hmm. um, and then get into some really wacky stuff. Um the particulars of creation and age of the earth, which that's a huge topic. And there's some groups that get very dogmatic about certain things related to that are certain things like music and church or a particular type of church governance. Um, I've got some friends in the reformed Baptist circle and man, I got nothing wrong with those guys. Those guys are great. They love Jesus, 
Sometimes they get a little bothered when they identify their church as a church that we are a 1689 London Baptist Confessional Church. I'm like, oh, okay. I thought you guys were supposed to be Jesus people, but okay. Um, and those things, man, get elevated to a point where, like, it's a doctrinal major. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that you hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession or the type, you know, that you're a church that's a premillennial eschatology. And, and that is your identity. Mm-hmm. And if you question that, your salvation or your dedication to God is in question. And, and then some groups like that I came up through, like IBLP, ATI, um, emphasize really weird extra biblical things on stuff like standards for dress, music, dating, or then super crazy charismatic groups, um, emphasize some really weird stuff with spiritual warfare. Um, I'm thinking in particular YWAM, some of their teaching on spiritual warfare is like not in the Bible, but they teach it as if it's in the Bible. And if you question it, then you're being rebellious. So like, here's what happens. Somebody grows up in that bubble, Mm -hmm. but eventually they leave the bubble and they discover some stuff and they start to ask, man, if I was told this about this, and then I later discovered that wasn't true at all. What if what I was told about this foundational doctrine of Christianity isn't true either? Mm. And I think when a church sets up a culture where that's happening, that really creates some fault lines in people's faith. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's why that's so dangerous. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's, I would say this is a, a huge one because, um, you know, you get hung up on these little minors and things, and we use them, like you said, to kind of differentiate between our tribes. Like, you know, uh, I'll throw out another one. is like uh, which Bible translation to read is one that people really major mm-hmm. on. That's kind of a minor thing. Um, people get hung up on that. But, yeah, you see that a lot in, in denominations. And I'm not picking, but, like, you know, the Pentecostal holiness, for instance, it's like they have a very strict dress right. code, very strict pattern of behavior and dress code, and... and and is it biblical in principle to be modest? Absolutely, yeah. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us clear and explicit instructions on what women should wear and what men should wear. So mm-hmm. we have to fill in we, – we try to fill in the uh, the blanks sometimes, and, and that's where we go wrong is that we fill in the blanks and we say that this filling in of the blanks, yeah, that's like on par with Scripture. And it's just right. not, you know, and it's it, – it's kind of a cop out. It's easy to do that, you know. It's it's like, man, that would make right. things really simple for us just to fill in the blanks and say that this is it. This is this is the answer. And um, because you know, when you go to the <laughs> when you go to the the uh, the church beach party and and you're like, oh gosh, I wish I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ladies start men start showing up wearing things they shouldn't be wearing. You're like, oh man, I wish we had like a modesty code. But it's just that's just it's a heart thing, right? It's um, right. It's the transformation of the heart, but. Yeah, that's that's a big one. I, I would say is um, is the, the point you just brought up. Mm. Another one. Um, did you have something to add? Nope, that's it. Okay. You do I yours. Say, I would say another one is um, when the teaching of a human being gets elevated to a place of infallibility. And for those mm. you don't know, like infallible means like it is without error. It's uh, timeless. It's like on par with the Word of God, right? Um, but teaching like this does what the two other forms of bad teaching do. Um, it propels someone towards deconstruction because the source of authority stops becoming scripture 
and instead becomes one particular party or person's interpretation of Scripture. Um, and the truth of God, the truths of God become entangled with a person or party's interpretation of Scripture, that it's difficult for someone to know one from the other. Um, so kind of the same thing happens. Someone begins to wonder, I think this leader may be wrong about whatever. Uh, does that mean they're wrong about everything else? And um, and because they, they've been in a culture that elevates a leader to a place of infallibility, the cracks start to widen and that person gets propelled towards deconstruction. Hmm. So it's important. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. It, yeah, it's important when we when we are teaching and we're giving interpretation. Um, you know, it's important that we don't put our interpretation of the text, or we don't um, put our. Uh, I'm trying to think of a better word, I guess, because you know we do need to interpret the text, but right, I guess we need to be in a place of of constant humility, knowing that sometimes our interpreta- interpretation just could be wrong. Sure. Um, you know, and and be be able to have the humility to come back and say, "Hey, guys, I I've been looking at this wrong this whole time, and I'm sorry that mm-hmm. I, I told you it was this." Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, really tough. Do you see hero worship in the messianic world? Oh yeah, yeah. That's any that's any yeah. any world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You see you see people that um, you know, there was there was one messianic teacher I, I won't name by name, but I just said like. Basically, it was, it was a minor thing. It was like eschatology. And he said back in the 90s, like, um, this is how this is going to play out. And by this date, we will be in the Great Tribulation. And by this date, Christ will have returned. We'll see a new temple built and all this other stuff. And, you know, and, and he goes on to say, like, if if, uh, if none of this happens, throw me on the garbage pile. I am a false prophet. and I, Don't ever listen to me again. And, of course, none of that happened. But all his followers just... Um, didn't throw him on the garbage pile and he still <laughs> what to say <laughs> but it's it's just a thing i mean it's just a human thing um we love notoriety and fame and glory um yeah i would say so for sure and um but what's interesting is uh you know we we have in in the messianic world uh there's there's a lot of overlap in between like normative uh, like Protestant Christianity, so you get people that mm-hmm. still like kind of idolize teachers in yeah. Protestant Christianity and pastors in in, in that realm. Um, and it's like, wait, what? Like you know, you, you're like um, yeah. trying to trying to think of an example, but um, yeah, it's it's just a, it's just a human problem for sure. It's just a heart problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, growing up in the homeschool cults that we were in, ATI, IBLP, the leader of that group was a guy by the name of Bill Gothard. Mm, and I've heard the name. Bill Gothard, yeah, he, he never married, he never had children, and yet he started this homeschool group where he was telling people to have as many children as possible and telling them how to parent their kids and do their marriage. Mm. And talking about it now, it's almost laughable how dumb people were to listen to this guy who is never married and never had kids. But questioning Bill Gothard's teachings mm. were akin to questioning God. Mm-hmm. Seriously. And it's just amazing how we so often do that with 
leaders, we prop them up. And I think every tribe has a leader that we could probably look at and go, yeah, we've probably put this person in a, on a pedestal that they don't belong on. Right. Um, I mean, gosh, in evangelicalism, I feel like you see that all the while. I feel like in the reformed world for a while, it was John Piper. People were just, I mean, if John Piper talked about running down the aisle of your church in a chicken suit, reformed guys would have done that, Mm. you know, left, right. And, and then it became John MacArthur, and you've got people that are MacArthurites, that everything John MacArthur does is just golden. I think Justin Peters went on his mm-hmm. YouTube channel once mm-hmm. and said that John MacArthur has contributed more to Christianity than anyone except for the Apostle Paul. And I thought, hmm, hmm. all right, so all the Reformers, all the Church Fathers— Augustine, none of those guys? Okay, John MacArthur. <laughs> so I, I just, you know, we, we have a tendency to do that, but mm-hmm. I think it's really unhealthy when we do, and it leads people to start questioning, okay, what's your source of authority, John MacArthur or the Bible? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever else. So, You know, I, I don't know, about 10 or 12 years ago, I went through a period of uh, intense renewal of my faith, I guess you could say, and I was very much in a sponge phase and looking for Bible teachers. And I was probably listening to, on average, 10 to 12 different Bible teachers throughout the week. Um, I was mm. just kind of like really just soaking up lots of different teaching. Remember, I'd, I'd get in the car and drive home from work and I'd immediately turn on, um, uh, what's the guy, um, walking the word guy, uh, McDonald. Um, oh yeah. James McDonald. James wow. McDonald. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I'd listen to him, uh, you know, every single day he'd come on the radio. Loved his teaching, and and then you know I I just in early in the morning I'd listen. But anyways, like I I had all these. So as time went on, however, that number dwindled down as mm-hmm. some of these people and their fruit became evident. Um, yeah. And not not all of them had bad fruit. I'm not saying that, but I got to a point where some of the most um, profound moments of scripture study. Um, it, it's really like me, uh, in, in, in my Bible and reading some commentaries and doing some, some deep linguistic studies in Hebrew or Greek using Bible software programs and connecting things that way. Um, and I do listen to teachers from time to time, but that number has drastically dwindled sure. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, would, I would encourage people to do that. You know, don't, don't hang your faith on one or two or three particular teachers of the Bible, yeah. um, you can glean from all these people, but sometimes um, sometimes just sitting in a place of peace and silence with your Bible open and just in a time of prayer is, is um, a profound way to learn the heart of God more. Right. Well, and that leader is fallible, right? Mm-hmm. That teacher is fallible. And so, God forbid, but if they do make a you know cataclysmic moral failure and commit a disqualifying sin you can grieve and be sad and probably even be hurt but if you mm-hmm. haven't propped them up to a level of infallibility where they are your source of authority then your faith is still going to be secure mm-hmm. no um next reason why uh 
or next way in which bad teaching kind of can propel someone towards this is when the teaching is sloppy, disorganized, illogical, unintelligent, and unbiblical. But the blame gets placed on the Holy Spirit because that teaching is Spirit-led. So I'm just going to say it out loud. There are a lot of church cultures that are decidedly anti-intellectual. So critical thinking, research, reading, education, linguistic studies, all the stuff you just talked about, Gabe, those Mm. things get poo-pooed. And they get poo-pooed because they are seen as unspiritual. And those things are often viewed with great suspicion. And in church cultures like this, teaching that is truly, quote-unquote, spirit-led, it's not informed by studying, reading, or developing sound reasoning from the scriptures. It's informed by very spur-of-the-moment, clever-sounding Christianese. Mm. And here's, I think, why it's received as profound, even though it's actually not profound, is these environments are created within a church service where people encourage the presenter, that is the preacher or the teacher, through amens, applauses, and cheers, even when they're saying absolutely nothing. Like there's one teacher who shan't be named, but he's of the preachers and sneakers persuasion. Hmm. And every now and again, I'll see a sermon clip of what he's saying, and he's saying absolutely nothing. But he's got a crowd of people sitting on the front row of his church that literally are like, yeah, come on, so good. Hmm. And it's like, are, n- no, what you're saying is is not untrue. It's not bad, but you're not saying anything profound. You're not really saying anything. Yeah, nothing of substance. No. Hmm. But I would submit to our listeners that these teachers use those amens and that applause and those cheers and they create that culture within that environment as a form of crowd control and psychological manipulation. And what it does is it's an attempt to try to persuade the listener that what they're hearing is profound, Hmm. even when it's not really that profound. But I think people who are critical thinkers can see through the clever sounding nothingness and understand just how dumb and not profound this all really is. And and I'd say a lot of listeners actually do want truth, but they're just not hearing it in their pulpit. And it creates a lot of doubt in some people. And I think perhaps that doubt propels them towards a deconstruction because they're like, man, this guy isn't really giving me much. He's just giving me a lot of hype. And I don't think it's one tribe doing that more than others, but that, definitely the one you and I came from, the Assemblies of God, I feel like we, we saw this quite a bit mm. in the Assemblies of God. I mean, do you remember that in chapel services? Yeah. Christians really love when a preacher uses uh, inspirational alliterations. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? An yes, alliteration is like a sentence Gosh. with a lot of words that start with the same letter. And man, nothing yes. hits us in the heart like faster than a pastor wearing... Sanctified. Soul-bought. Yeah, yeah. Or just like little little chicken soup for the soul kind of phrases that have alliterations mm-hmm. in them. Man, we eat those up, right? Yes. Um, yeah. I can't even think of any. But yeah, sure. no, I just remember chapel services. It'd be like 8 in the morning. And we had to be there. 
and I'd have studied for tests the whole night before and had a 7 a.m. class and went mm. to class, got done with class, had to be in chapel, and then the worship band is just like playing at an ungodly volume. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm mm. half asleep. And they'd be like, get up! I'm just here to magnify! <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Lord, help me, Jesus. And then the pastor would get up and it'd be, you know, some guest minister from, you know, this is guest so-and-so from... Opalakaba, Alabama, and he's from, you know, I don't even know if that's a place. You know, First Assembly of Gospel Holiness Assembly of God, and he's here to bring the word, and this guy's been up drinking coffee since four, you know. Mm -hmm. And he gets up there, and he just starts to say, I just want you all to know this morning that Solomon had a nose. Mm. And then just like wait, and then people go, mm, mm, that's, mm, that's good. And he'd be like, no, no, some of y'all not. I'm going to preach over here to this crowd. <laughs> I'd be like, mm-hmm. I'd be sitting there just going, of course Solomon had a nose. Like everybody has a nose. Why is that profound? It's not profound, but he would make it profound. And then if it didn't work what he was saying to get enough amens, he'd start to yell. Hmm. Do you remember spir- that? Yeah, it spirals out of control. Yes. I was not a good chapel attendee. I, I would, <laughs> wasn't so either. <laughs> I would I would walk in the front door, get my thing scanned as if I was there, and then pretend to be part of the uh, sound crew and walk out the back door. Oh, you clever uh, devil! And I'd go back to sleep in my dorm room. I know. I was. I I tried that, that once, and Doctor Hackett stopped me, and he's like, uh, "You like can't do that." I was like, "Oh," <laughs> so I never tried that again. But. Anyway, he's got to carry what's a ladder. Your, what's our, uh, carry a ladder. You see those guys on YouTube? They just carry <laughs> ladders and they just go into places like they have like a ladder and like an orange vest on, and they just walk into places for free everywhere. Oh, yeah. that's brilliant! Yeah. Why didn't I have a ladder as a freshman in college? Mm-hmm. All right, what's the next reason for how um, bad teaching? Yeah, so this is the fifth reason when bad teaching uh, propels someone into deconstructionism is when the teaching draws prim- primarily from emotionalism rather than truth of scripture. Um, mm. In church cultures that are, in, are, you at a, are you at a coffee? I just saw you sip the last of Yeah, water. I'm out of coffee. Um, it makes me sad. Was it good to the last later? It was, even though it wasn't uh, Maxwell House. Okay. So. <laughs> I just saw it in the corner of my eye. Like you're like tipping your cup up, like just with a sad look on your face. Yes, yeah, it's very uh, sad. Anyway, anyways, continue. So in, in church cultures that are anti-intellectual and lean heavily on clever sounding Christian knees instead of biblical teaching, they purposely create environments to package this kind of teaching. Um, like you said, the amen squad is a part of that, right? But also keys mm-hmm. playing softly behind the teaching. We got the sneaky music as we call it now. <laughs> <laughs> a hyper music. Yeah. The sneaky music. It's when, uh, you know, he's winding down the sermon and the, the uh, the worship team sneaks up on stage. It's the sneaky mm-hmm. music, and then suddenly yeah, you're like, good. you know, your your head is bowed, and you're out there, and your head is bowed, and he's like, kind of winding everything down, and he's like, man, stir-. and then suddenly you're like, why am I hearing piano playing? Why am I, why is <laughs> why is there a synthesizer? Yeah, did that die and go to heaven? Yeah, yeah. man, the ho- the Holy Spirit sounds like a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, mm-hmm. uh, there's a hyper dramatic presentation, like he's yelling at times, whispering at other times, weeping at other times, and. It's kind of this roller coaster of, of dramatic and, and there's a time and place for that. Sometimes that's that's genuine. Sure. But um the the key difference is that clear truths of scripture are not being proclaimed. That's that's mm. now you can do all that as long as you're proclaiming the clear truths of scripture, right? Uh mm-hmm. 
it's, an, it's like an emotional appeal that at times seems downright manipulative. And often yeah. there's like a cell at the end of every presentation. Come to the altar, like come to the altar, get saved and get filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. Or give generously, uh oh, and sow your seed of faith into mm. what God is doing in this ministry. I've heard you, that you, one don't, you don't want to miss out. Yeah. Um, this may work on some people, but there's a lot of people who just don't buy it. Yes. And for a lot of people, they're deeply suspicious of one, the deeply manipulative packaging of a presentation that's not even that profound. And then two, the fact that there is a cell at the end of every presentation. Yeah. Um, but over time, the trust kind of starts to erode and the listener begins to think to themselves, what does this dude want from his church this time and why? And that eroded trust and that doubt often propels someone to deconstruct their faith. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things someone, um, pastors can't help, but in the closing prayer after their teaching and sermon or whatever, uh, they have to uh, they have to summarize their sermon in the prayer. So you're, you're going to pay attention to this now. Like Sunday morning, you're going to get up there and you're going to be like, you're going to hit all three points in that closing prayer. Yes. And oh man, I like think I sometimes do that. Yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, okay. Man. I got maybe maybe the maybe there's ten percent of the people that weren't paying attention while I was actually teaching the sermon that are paying attention now, yeah, and I'm going to yeah. review my sermon for them in this closing. I'm, I'm going to get them with the prayer because yeah. you're listening in the prayer because you're supposed to be praying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be so self conscious now on Sunday. <laughs> I am. I'm just going to, dear God, we love you. Send bad Jesus good. Amen. Yeah, man. That even just just you talking about it and us talking about that style just kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies because I, I remember being in a lot of churches like that. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think some people just have a, um, I don't know, a sense that those things are manipulative and they're being manipulated mm-hmm. and it causes them to really not want to listen to the things that that person is saying that could be true because of the way it's packaged, you know? Yeah. I, I think our generation, starting with millennials especially, but even into Generation X is just the one before us, if I'm not mistaken. I think we've grown disenfranchised with that kind of presentation. I think the, the baby boomer generation ate that up, uh, yeah. that, that kind of packaging and that presentation. Whereas I think our generation is kind of like, you know, we've seen infomercials and w- wow sham yeah. or whatever. You know, like we've seen sham wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sham wow. Yeah, we've wow. seen all that. Wow and we, like, sham. <laughs> we don't like the sliminess of that being no. mirrored in our worship experience. No, and we that that kind of just ugh, you know we don't we don't enjoy that, um, mm-hmm. and we see the insincerity in it. Um, yeah, I think our generation is exceptional in in this sense, and I often will rag on our generation and not actually give it a lot of credit. But I'm going to give it some credit here because the millennial generation is the first generation that is like, I am tired of of falsehood. I'm tired of insincerity. I want something mm-hmm. that is very real. And yes. sometimes we do it to our own detriment, but I want something that is stripped down and real. Um, yeah. We're very, very picky about that. Yes, we are. And, and, and at times that quest for realness and, and authenticity can create in our heads unattainable ideals. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. To the point where we get married later 
than any other generation. Mm-hmm. We can't decide which career path to choose because we're not content for one that doesn't feel like the real deal. Like our standards are so high sometimes that yeah. there's nothing out there that can satisfy those standards, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that comes to bite us in the butt, those high standards. But, I mean, that is a noble thing, right, to have high standards mm-hmm. for things being authentic and real and, and the real thing. And I think that's commendable. We just have to be careful, I think, to manage those expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So uh, the next way in which false teaching sometimes can propel someone to deconstruction is when the teaching is presented in an angry, unchristlike, antagonistic, us versus them, and very prideful way. In some forms of Christianity, and it's it's kind of always been there, but um, I think in more recent years, this has become more front and center. But in some forms of Christianity, being right provides someone a license to be an absolute jerk. Hmm. Like being right doctrinally, being right politically, being right morally is seen as more important than you being loving, kind, full of grace, and letting other people see Jesus in you. Um, I have been reading a book by James R. White called The King James Only Controversy. And uh, James R. White talks about people who are kind of in this movement, the King James Version Only movement, and how the King James Version Only folks... Um, say that, you know, the King James Bible is the only version of the Bible. You've heard about this movement, right? And he started talking about a guy by the name of Peter Ruckman. And I had heard a little bit about Peter Ruckman, but James White wrote this about him. He he said, Peter Ruckman, uh, to call him outspoken is to engage in an exercise and understatement. Caustic is too mild of a term. Bombastic is a little more accurate. There is no doubt that Peter S. Ruckman is brilliant, but in a strange sort of way. His mental powers are plainly demonstrated in his books, though most people do not bother to read far enough to recognize this due to the constant stream of invective that is found on nearly every page, and yet his cocky confidence attracts many people to his viewpoint. Hmm. So Peter Ruckman would essentially write books, write articles, write all these things, and everyone who disagreed with them these are some of the choice names that he called those who disagree with him. He called them jackass. He would say this from the pulpit. Poor, dumb, stupid red legs. <laughs> he would call them silly asses. But, of course, because he was a King James Bible guy, that means donkey. That doesn't mean what you think it means. He would call people an apostolic succession of bloated egotists, two-bit junkies, two-faced tin-horn punks, incredible idiots, egotistical jacklegs, <laughs> conservative asses whose brains have gone to seed, cheap two-bit punks, stupid little Bible-rejecting apostates. He called the New American Standard version of the Bible more of the same old godless depraved crap. <laughs> wow. It's not funny other than the fact that there are people that were sitting there amening him. Uh, This is what he wrote, I guess, in 1991, I guess. 
I'll just read it. He goes, when President Bush tried to put a black man on the Supreme Court in 1991, he discovered that the NAACP was not really interested in promoting colored people at all. That's kind of racist. It was interested in promoting left-wing radical black socialists. Suddenly, color had very little to do with it. Political stance determined the evaluation. The press was not against queers, dopeheads, sex perverts, atheists, communists, but they were against conservative Americans, apartheid. Conservative Americans of any race have always outnumbered queers, dopeheads, atheists, and sex perverts. So, like, there's a shred of truth behind what he's saying, but his presentation of it is so ridiculously crass and so ridiculously mean and so ridiculously angry and offensive. But his followers would celebrate and applaud him for saying the most angry, antagonistic, offensive things because of the thought that the truth behind the point they're making justifies the crassness and the anger. And all of his supporters in his church called his teaching truth with an attitude. And and here's what's like really, really disturbing to me is Peter Ruckman is like the most exaggerated example of that. But we talked about our, our boy in here in the Nashville area. Um, we're not going to say his name, but he was on – you know, he's been on every national news circuit you can imagine because you never know the the kind of crazy stuff he's going to say. And he could be incredibly mean and incredibly antagonistic. But there's a shred of truth behind some of the stuff he's saying, but he says it in such a mean-spirited, angry way. And so many people applaud him and celebrate him and say, man, just I just want a man of God to speak truth like that. And like... For people who are swept up in that fervor, they're all about it, but it doesn't take long for most other people to see the hypocrisy and sin in that kind of approach. Now, that's flat out sinful. That's flat out like you're absolutely closing your eyes to half the words of Jesus where Jesus talks about loving your enemies, praying for those who curse you, blessing those uh, who would persecute you, all that stuff. You're, you're basically having to just pretend like that doesn't exist in the word. Hmm. And and so that kind of approach causes people to start doubting everything you say because they see you and they see the fruit of your life. You seem angry. You seem mean. You seem like you have zero grace in your life. And I think it propels people at a warp speed into deconstruction when they see that kind of approach. And I think that's what bothers me so much about um, how a lot of evangelicalism has been hijacked by the whole MAGA Trumpism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Donald Trump was not a pastor, but there's pastors that see how that worked for him and gaining popularity. And they want to be like him, and so they start speaking like a loose cannon, and they're mean, and they're angry. And, uh, yeah, it may work. You might get a following, but the people that are on the fence about, should I follow Jesus, should I not? Man, you send them packing in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like people will say in, in defense of that kind of stuff, like, well, we need someone that just speaks their mind, you know, this, this day and age. We just need someone that will just say things that need to be said. 
And it's like, last time I checked, like in scripture, you don't just speak what's on your mind. You, you have self-control mm-hmm. and you, you tame your tongue. Right. Um, yeah. It's, and I think especially our generation is a very feelings-based generation. Nothing more than feelings. <laughs> so we, when we see someone getting bullied, you know, right, we always, we always come to the aid of the victim in our generation. We always are concerned about the victim, which is, which is good. I think that's a godly virtue mm-hmm. if done in, in, in moderation and balance. But, yeah, anytime we see – in a debate, for instance, I always say this about debates when you have two people that are debating. It's – in our generation, we're looking at that debate and we're listening to it not based on the content of what they're saying but how one person is treating another person. That is yeah. that is the clear delineation between who's the victor and who's not. And if there's any kind sure. of bullying, if there's any kind of belittling or, or tongue lashing right away, our generation is like, oh, that person is is severe. They're mean. They're a bully. Um, and therefore, I disagree with them. Sure. Yeah, um, I think Paul said if we <laughs> speak with the tongues of men and angels, um, but we have not love, we become like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Mm-hmm. So in the church today, there's a lot of resounding gongs and clanging cymbals. And the world can't hear any of the truth that they're bringing because all they see is their loveless approach. And so they may be right, but nobody cares because they're a-holes. Mm-hmm. What, so, what does the A stand for? In a, what it, I well, I think that. Peter Ruckman would tell you. <laughs> a King James King James Version donkey. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, the seventh reason we get propelled into deconstruction sometimes is when the teaching doesn't address hard issues like suffering, poverty, homosexuality, or God's judgment. Um, it's kind of a seeker-sensitive movement that was started to grow, started to grow very popular in the the '90s and 2000s. It kind of goes, you know, it, it dodges those kinds of topics. In yeah. the minds of many, church is no longer a place to go to connect with the transcendence of God and contemplate the majesty, wonder, and beauty of the mysteries of the divine. It's rather a place to go and be entertained and catered to. Mm. So this obsession with entertainment and consumerism is just one of the many unfortunate byproducts of what Thomas Burgler refers to as the juvenilization of American Christianity. I love that phrase. He says, um, today to be a teenager is to be bombarded by up to 3,000 advertising messages a day designed to play on desires for popularity, uh, desires for fun, domination of others, and sexual fulfillment. Christianity must compete effectively in a smorgasbord of sensuality that is the youth market. And adolescent Christians expect their faith to be fun and entertaining, and they want the church to make use of the latest music, technology, and cultural trends. Some revel in a completely parallel Christian youth subculture, complete with its own music, celebrities, and clothing, all modeled on the offerings of the wider popular culture. And adolescent Christians construct their religious identities through consumption of products and experiences. Mm. Um, so because of this juvenilization of American Christianity, uh, the teaching in some churches becomes very shallow, pragmatic, unintelligent, and it just doesn't address the hard topics of Scripture and the world around us. Um, many Christians that have come up through churches that were swept up in this movement in the 90s and 2000s were woefully unequipped to deal with the big, difficult issues surrounding their faith. So when they went off to college or encountered people who started poking holes in their faith, they had no answers because they'd never been equipped to give them. So shallow teaching yeah. produces shallow and unequipped and 
ill-prepared Christians that don't know how to properly wrestle with their doubt because they don't know their Bible. Mm. Yeah, golly, man. I feel like you see this so often. Mm. It's like youth group culture, right? Mm -hmm. But then it's not just youth group culture. That's crept into just church culture. Yeah, and I think this... um, the juvenilization of Christianity, it starts, you know, with like, let's, let's form a second service that caters to teenagers. And then eventually that becomes the main service. And then that cycle continues. Well, let's start another service. Let's start this other experience that it caters to youth and we'll go out into the streets and bring a bunch of youth in. They'll be okay with this experience, but eventually they're, they're wanting that in the main world. So yeah, you kind of get the cycle of like, eventually it gets so overstimulating as a worship experience that you forget that God's presence is the only thing that we're seeking here. It should be the only thing that we're seeking here instead of it's like uh, laser shows and, and, you know, lights and all kinds of good stuff and smoke, smoke machines. I, I, so like, I, I don't, I think contextualization is okay in the sense of like we all have a contextualization we bring even if we're not like I think it's so funny when people are um, you know dogging churches for putting together a worship service that's excellent and that flows and it's you know, the production value is good but they're like man we just bring a simple like there's just nothing and I'm like well I mean that is a contextualization right like mm-hmm. you're contextualizing your message to minister to a group that prefers that. I mean, we all have a contextualization. I think the problem is when the presentation becomes the meat instead of the meat being the meat. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like what you're trying to do is get people into an entertaining experience versus maybe putting together an experience that's contextualized that contains in it a teaching from the Bible or a powerful time of prayer or a time of communion or a time of ministry, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, again, we're getting into, I mean, some of my friends in the Orthodox church, they're very big on, you know, creating environments of transcendence with their worship spaces and the, you know, the alkalites come in with the incense and all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so they would probably say like all those symbols point people to a transcendence. That's not them. And that's the Lord. Right. Mm. So I think there is a place for some of that. I think you can go too far with it where people get more in love with the form of it mm-hmm. instead of what the form is supposed to point to. But I think ultimately what we're saying is that when the teaching starts to become so shallow and so dumbed down and so like, man, we don't want to push kids too hard. We don't want to talk about the tough stuff because we just want to give them like a couple of nuggets to chew on. And so the teaching is like, we're going to do a teaching on relationships and like a six week series on, you know, how to be a good friend, that kind of stuff. And, I mean, it's almost like Disney Channel. You know what I mean? It does not, mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. getting into the to tough stuff and the realities of suffering and all. I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? Like, it's just mm-hmm. become so cheesy and, and so Mickey Mouse that it, it doesn't help people in the least bit when they go out into the real world. Well, I think, too, you know, to some pastor's credit, we live in a day and age where you say the wrong thing and you are canceled. 
Yeah. And or you say the wrong thing and it just comes off wrong. It just comes off like hateful or something. So I think I think sometimes in the for the fear of being canceled or fear of 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 someone saying you you are a hateful individual. Um, Sometimes pastors just just want to be safe. They don't they want to avoid particular topics or they they don't want to say something that you know could be misconstrued. So they just want to play it safe and give everyone something that is positive, something that's encouraging, but doesn't really delve into you know some of these major hot button issues that. You know, our yeah. our kids are going to get answers to these kinds of questions from different outlets because they're they're searching for these answers. They're going to be given those answers from from a, a different worldview if we right. don't. But yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep going because we got a lot of ground to cover in like ten minutes. <laughs> so the last type of teaching is teaching that only addresses one side of the coin without addressing the nuances. So, like, there are black and white, clear teachings of the scripture. That's the divinity of Jesus, the necessity of Christ for salvation, the Trinity, all that stuff. We would agree those are majors. Those are black and whites. You start taking away those teachings, you don't have Christianity. You have something else, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other issues in Scripture where there has been room for reasonable disagreement in the last 2,000 years of church history. So, like, the exact timeline in, in terms of the second coming of Christ and how that lines up with the millennial kingdom and the rapture of the church and all that stuff. The ways that the gifts of the Holy Spirit function, the proper mode of baptism, the correct form of church governance, that kind of thing. Um, But what if you were in a group and you were brought up in a group or you were raised in a group, you came to faith in a group where those nuances and those differences in interpretation were never explained or even talked about. It's just, Mm -hmm. this is the right way to see it. And this is the only way to see it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you grow up and you get outside of your camp and you discover the nuances and the multiple interpretations of that same concept and verse. But if you started questioning the way you were taught this doctrinal minor, it feels like you're questioning the whole thing and the whole house of cards starts to fall over. So I think when biblical teaching or teaching from a pulpit or teaching in a church doesn't tell the full story, doesn't address the nuances, doesn't acknowledge the various forms of interpretation with certain issues, I think that can fuel some doubt and mistrust and propel people towards deconstruction. So, hey, we're going to talk real quick about church hurt. We've done a whole episode on spiritual abuse and church hurt, but we're going to briefly just uh, touch on it. But before we really dive into that, I just want us to give this disclaimer We have to be careful when we talk about church hurt to make sure we're distinguishing between what is clear spiritual abuse and what might be something else. Because here's the reality. Sometimes the truth hurts. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit prunes us and conviction from the Holy Spirit cuts us and leads us to cut something out of our lives that's harmful and deadly to us spiritually. And sometimes godly shepherds that love us speak truth that isn't easy to hear. But initially, it's our pride that gets wounded, and that truth confronts our childishness, our immaturity, or our rebellion. And so Jesus, the Holy Spirit, godly leaders who are following Jesus and the Holy Spirit, may love us enough to speak tough truths in love that might initially cause us some pain. 
But the difference is it's pain without harm. It's pain that leads to growth. It's pain that leads to change. It's pain that leads to life. And every type of growth, change, and improvement involves some level of pain. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's restorative. Right. So, like, hey, just because your pastor said, hey, you, you need to stop living with your boyfriend and have a sex with him doesn't mean you're abused by your church. Right? <laughs> Just because your pastor said, hey, you need to stop smoking marijuana. I know you use it and you claim to use it for your anxiety, but smoking marijuana is a sin and it's it's an intoxicant. So you need to stop doing that. That doesn't mean you were spiritually abused. Mm-hmm. Right? Just because your pastor said, hey, you're being very childish and immature and rebellious about this situation. I really would love for you to, to think about that. Um, and they had that tough conversation with you. And so you took your ball and went home and said, well, church hurt me. I got abused. Uh, Maybe not, right? Maybe you reacted in a way that was exceptionally childish and immature and rebellious, and and you say it's church hurt when it's really you got convicted and you didn't want to handle that conviction, right? Mm. Mm. However, with that being said, there are sometimes wolves, they're not shepherds, that claim to have our best interest in mind, but they don't, and they hurt, abuse, and harm people in Jesus' church. So, Gabe, how does this type of church hurt lead people to deconstruct? Well, church hurt... Give me the first one. Yeah, it can confuse people by by shattering trust through leadership failures like moral failures, financial embezzlement, toxic leadership styles, uh, sexual harassment and abuse, and and, and other sins. And we've seen all those throughout the years, right? And they, they begin to ask, well, who can I trust? If I can't trust them, can I trust anything they believed in or taught about? And you fill in the blank, right? Yeah. You see that in the Hillsong uh, documentary series especially, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, second way the church can hurt and confuse people that lead them to deconstruction is it opposes critical thinking. It discourages the asking of questions. And it requires people within the church to comply blindly with authoritarian leaders and structures. And so someone eventually starts to ask, what are they so scared of me finding out? Why are they trying to control me? Is the only reason they're telling me blank because they want to control me because they want to oppress me? Mm-hmm. And I think that really heavy-handed authoritarian form of leadership can really hurt and confuse people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I would say thirdly, the church hurts and confuses people by the mishandling of church discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the threat of church discipline is used to create a culture of fear and control and paranoia, for instance, or when church discipline is inequitable, only the woman gets punished in, in adultery, for instance, mm-hmm. instead of both. Um, when church discipline is overbearing or it's heavy-handed and too much for the offense. Or when church discipline is premature and unwise and making an, offensive, making an offense public. Um, you know, so, mm-hmm. so it's really important you follow Matthew 18. It doesn't get out of t- uh, context. Follow the steps of Matthew 18 there. Um, you know, I always believe that if you follow the steps of Matthew 18 and step one is go to the person privately and individually, um, to resolve the conflict about 99% of the conflicts and, and issues get resolved right there in step one, but it's very important. We do yeah. that so, so quick. We're quick to like make it a public thing. Oh, you know, like the, the sure. caught in the center or whatever, but we gotta, we gotta stop doing that and handle it scripturally. Absolutely. Yeah. Number four, the church can hurt and confuse people by treating them like commodities or resources, 
or numbers instead of just loving them like people. Mm. And um, man, watching the Hillsong documentary and listening to the pod, the podcast that follows up on that, this was like a common thing. You would have the leaders of the church having green rooms with like catered food and the volunteers who are working like 40 hours a week on top of their normal jobs are like living on ramen and dry pasta. And mm. the church is okay not paying them or giving them food or anything. And so when a church is okay with burning people out by manipulating them into serving, uh, it leads people to ask, is the only reason the leaders want me in this church so they can use me as a commodity to work and serve and build their brand? Mm. And that hurts and confuses a lot of people. I think we're seeing that in evangelicalism right now. Mm-hmm. Now I'd say, fifthly, the, the church can hurt and confuse people by requiring inappropriate demonstrations of loyalty to the leaders and the church. Um, like you said, they require people to be more loyal to the brand or the tribe or denomination than to Christ. They say, you mm-hmm. know, people begin to question, who, who am I actually following? Am I following Jesus or am I following this particular person or this denomination or this brand? Yeah. That's big. Mm-hmm. Number six, the church hurts and confuses people by isolating itself and its members from the world and from the wider body of Christ. Mm. So unfortunately, there's a lot of church cultures where isolationism, secrecy, and elitism create a very significant amount of confusion and hurt. Um. And then somebody leaves the bubble and they start to ask, hey, if everybody is bad but us, what about this really awesome person I just met that loves Jesus and doesn't go to our church? Or what about this really awesome person I just met that doesn't even know Jesus? So if everybody's bad but us, if we're the chosen remnant of the Lord, then why is this person over here seem to really love Jesus? And Or this person over here that just seems to be really awesome doesn't even know Jesus. I guess maybe we don't have all the answers like we thought we did, right? Mm. But that isolation and secrecy and elitism really hurts and confuses people, I think, a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of stuff that cults are made out of, right? Yeah. Um, I'll add that the church hurts and confuses people by um, having misaligned priorities, like building a mm. $30 million addition to the facility instead of doing anything in the community to help those in need. Or showing favoritism to certain types of groups of people, or maybe an inappropriate emphasis on po- politics and political causes. Um, and people begin to ask, why are we doing this thing called church? Is it because we truly have a truth that can change the world and save souls, or are we just building another capitalistic enterprise? Mm. Why, or they'll ask, like, why are we only emphasizing certain parts of Scripture but ignoring other parts? Yeah. Man, you see that happening all the time. (laughs) And then lastly, the church hurts and confuses people when a culture of inauthenticity and hypocrisy shames and blames the victim's sin and leadership failures instead of the leaders and the church accepting responsibility and repenting. And man, the story of Willow Creek you've read that story, it is fraught with this all through it. There's an amazing book by Scott McKnight called A Church Called Tove. Um, fantastic book, but it, it details a lot of instances of churches victim shaming instead of saying, 
no, we were wrong. We did this wrong. Mm-hmm. We mishandled this. So when leadership failures happen or when sin happens in the church and the church chooses to protect their interests instead of repenting and making it right, people get wounded. And those wounds often cause people to want nothing to do with church and anything at all related to church. And so that's a pretty serious, serious, serious thing. I'd say that is spiritual abuse. And, um, yeah. So as we close up today, how can I make sure I'm not setting myself or my kids up to be misled or hurt or propelled into deconstruction? I'd say, number one, make sure you're in a church where the Bible is actually being taught faithfully. It's not emotionalism. It's not anti-intellectualism. It's not hype. It's not some guy gives three alliterative points with a keyboard in the background and they're yelling. And it's really not much of anything at all. Mm-hmm. It's not really scripture. It's just sort of a feel-good chicken soup for the soul. You, you don't need to be in a church like that because the church is supposed to be a place where the Bible is taught faithfully. And if it's not being taught faithfully, then you're not getting fed. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. All right, you do number two. Yeah, I'll say uh, make sure you're in a church where the leadership is held accountable and there's a culture of grace, humility, goodness, kindness, and uh, authenticity. Yeah, that's really, really big. Mm -hmm. Number three, make sure you have a safe place in your church to wrestle with your doubts and to wrestle with your questions. If your church discourages you from asking questions or if you start to have doubts about certain beliefs and issues, you're like, man, we've always said this, but what about this over here? And your church is really heavy handed and, mm-hmm. um, and you've got no place to go with that. Then, then man, you need to be in a place where they're actually following the word of God. The book of Jude, it said, has, have mercy on those who doubt. So if no mercy is being shown to you when you're doubting and you have questions, then that's not a good environment. And that's going to lead those doubts to grow into bigger fault lines that may lead you to not a good place. You know, one of the things we do, if I can speak to this, um, it's a very unusual, I would say, for our our corporate worship service. Um, back when we were just, our congregation was, you know, like 20, 25 people. We started this where we do a Q&A at the end of my teaching, where uh, hmm. scripture I was teaching on. And we just kept that going. And, you know, now we probably run you know, around a hundred regular attendees on our, our normal service. And we have a Q and a at the end of it. It's about 15 minutes long wow. and people can ask questions as long as it's pertaining to that particular text that was taught on or whatever. And we have some great times of learning through that. Um, you know, great questions being brought up. Uh, it's terrifying to do that for me personally. Like it's, it doesn't feel safe. Um, but there's, I always say like, I reserve the right to say, I don't know. That doesn't yeah. make me wrong. Doesn't, doesn't lessen our faith and my authenticity. Just makes it where I don't. I don't know that. I can't give you the answer to that right now. But um, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's really good. Yeah. Um, I would say fourthly, make sure you're you're not in a church where being right is being used as a licensed as a license to being an a hole, a jerk. <laughs> um, just because you're right doesn't mean you get to bludgeon people with it, right? You still have to practice what's called the fruits of the spirit. And lastly, make sure you know the difference between being hurt because of conviction and correction Mm. and being hurt because of clear spiritual abuse. 
So make sure, like, if you feel hurt because of something a church leader said or did or hurt because of something that happened in a church, take some time to, to really take that before the Lord and say, God, what, what is it that hurt? Is it because my pride was wounded and I was convicted because I'm in sin? Or is there clear instances of spiritual abuse? If there's clear spiritual abuse, man, get out of there. Go to a healthy church with a leader you can trust and who's being held accountable. If it's just because, man, there's some sin in your life, then, then you hopping to another church is not going to help. You're, wherever you go, there you still are, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, Gabe, this has been good, man. Uh, I really hope yeah. people hear our hearts in this. We're not just trying to church bash, but I hope we're creating understanding in in the uh, minds of people that may not understand why someone would start down the deconstruction journey, maybe to have some empathy and compassion that, yeah, maybe they got there honestly because they saw some things that really bothered them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, man, if you're a church leader or you go to a church and you're like, hey, we're everything we do is great. It's awesome. The church is great. There's nothing wrong with the church. It's just people who, you know, get their panties in a wad and leave. Um, we pr- should probably have a little more humility than that and look in the mirror and say mm-hmm. maybe there's some things maybe we're not doing as the American church that maybe we should be doing. So... Well, if you have any questions or comments or anything else, send us an email. Fears and Bible Podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on the YouTubes. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.